Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and how the alligators feel for once. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Today's episode is with Robert Wright, host of the popular podcast, The Wright Show, uh, and it's being released on both of our feeds. As a result, it's a little different from our typical episode, uh, because at times I'm interviewing Bob, and at times he's interviewing me. I was especially interested in talking to Bob uh, as he's starting a new project that he calls the Apocalypse Aversion Project, and I was keen to see where his thinking about global catastrophic risks uh, aligns with ours at 80,000 Hours. Bob is focused on creating the necessary conditions uh, for thorough global coordination, and in particular, he thinks that the key to getting there uh, might be encouraging enough individuals to uh, transcend the psychology of tribalism, uh, as he puts it. This focus might sound a little bit odd to some of our listeners, and I push back on how realistic that approach uh, really is, Uh, but it's definitely an idea worth thinking about. Bob starts off by questioning me about the nature of effective altruism, uh, and then we go on to cover a bunch of other topics, uh, such as specific risks like climate change or side effects from new technologies, uh, why Bob thinks uh, widespread mindfulness uh, might have averted the Iraq war, the pros and cons of society-wide surveillance, uh, how I got into effective altruism, and plenty more besides. If you're interested to hear more of Bob's interviews, you can subscribe to The Right Show anywhere that you're getting the 80,000 Hours podcast. I think our listeners might be particularly interested in a recent episode that Bob released on the 5th of May, uh, which he recorded with the psychologist Paul Bloom. That episode is called uh, Despite Our Best Intentions. Um, It covers the value of defying your tribe, uh, the principal attribution error, uh, and in their words, the thin line between courage and acting like an asshole. All right, without further ado, I bring you me and Bob Wright. Today, I'm speaking with Robert Wright. Bob is an American journalist and author who writes about science, history, and politics. Among others, he's the author of The Moral Animal, The New Science of Evolutionary Psychology, Non-Zero, The Logic of Human Destiny, The Evolution of God, and finally, Why Buddhism is True. He was also into podcasting long before it was called, having helped set up bloggingheads.tv in 2005. And since then, he has hosted the popular podcast, The Right Show. For that reason, today is a slightly unusual episode, and we plan to post it on, uh, on both of our podcast feeds, which means we'll aim to both ask and answer questions in, in roughly equal measure. And I guess we'll, we'll see how that experiment goes. Thanks for coming on the, on the podcast and your own podcast, uh, Bob. Yeah, well, thanks for having me. And you can now thank me for having you, I guess. Uh, <laughs> yeah, on, on my end, I hope we'll get to chat about your views on how to reduce the risk of global catastrophes and whether or not I should start meditating. But first off, I guess I'm curious to know, how would you define effective altruism in your mind? And what do you kind of currently like and like and dislike about what you've heard of it? Well, first of all, let me say I'm really happy to have the chance to interrogate you about it, partly because I want to kind of explore synergies between it and my own my own current obsession, which I call the Apocalypse Aversion Project, in which I write about in my uh, newsletter on Substack, the non-zero newsletter, because I I suspect there are real synergies and maybe some contrasts. As for how I would define effective altruism, it's funny. I first learned of it, I probably first heard the term from Peter Singer. I actually co-taught a graduate seminar at Princeton with Peter Maybe eight or nine years ago, it wasn't about this. It was about the biological basis of moral intuition. But after that, I remember he was working on his book, which became the book, The Most Good You Can Do, right, about effective altruism. And it's funny, I remember having lunch with him after the book was finished, and he had a different title in mind. I don't remember what it was, but he had just learned that that title was a phrase that was trademarked by Goodwill, by Goodwill Industries, 
so he probably couldn't use it. And I, re- I remember joking with him that he should say to Goodwill, if you don't let me use your trademarked phrase, I will call <laughs> my book Goodwill is not enough. And uh, oh, interesting. That's and that would have been it. Would have been a reasonable as I. So this is my understanding of effective altruism: is that it's yeah. good intentions are not enough. They need to be guided by reason if you want to do good in the world. That's the most generic kind of way, I guess I would put it. Now, beyond that, I think I, I think you may warn me that there's some danger in associating the phrase too closely with Peter Singer because Peter has a whole worldview that may not be exactly the same as effective altruism. But so far, would you say that that's about as far as I've articulated it so far that that is effective altruism? Yeah, I think that's basically right. I guess I think of effective altruism as the kind of intellectual project of trying to figure out how we can improve the world in kind of the biggest way possible. And then, and then hopefully doing some of that as well. Right. But in a sense, it's like it's a very open-ended sort of question or, or, or project. And I guess it's a somewhat difficult thing to explain because people are used to kind of understanding an ideology in terms of specifically what it does or some like set of specific beliefs and a program. Whereas this is like more of a question and maybe like a general way of thinking about it. But obviously people have lots of different views on exactly how would you do, how would you do the most good. So yeah, you can't define it as just, you know, a specific set of things like, you know, making a lot of money and giving it to charity or just doing evidence-based work to reduce poverty. Uh, you know, those are popular things, but there's a much wider range of things that people uh, think might be really promising. Right. I mean, I guess I think of it, well, I think many people think of it as kind of a quantitative exercise. In other words, you know, I mean, again, Peter is a utilitarian. That means he thinks that in principle, a good ethical system is one that maximizes human, you know, well-being or happiness or however you want to define that that end product technically. And of course, he recognizes that as a practical matter, you can't go around quantifying that all the time, but still you know, it is implicitly kind of quantitative. And if you associate that with effective altruism, you know, people saying, well, you should take this dollar that you're giving to charity and you could increase its return by 1% if you moved it to this charity. And actually, I think there are cases in which you kind of do talk like that, right? It's just not the whole story. Yeah, exactly. I guess, so the question is like how to, how to do the most good. And people have latched onto different strategies that they might use in order to try to have more impact. And one of them is kind of taking the approach that you're, you're alluding to there, which is like being really quantitative, being really rigorous about kind of what, what evidence you demand for telling whether something is having an impact. And that's one way that you might be able to get an edge and have more impact than you would otherwise. It's like really thinking about things carefully and being skeptical about whether stuff is having impact and trying to like, you know, evaluate whether you're actually having impact. And that's like, you know, a, a lot of people are trying to use that as a way of doing more good. But then there's other approaches that people take. And probably the one that I'm most excited by is trying to improve the long-term future of humanity because it's kind of a neglected issue where potentially the if you succeed, the value of the gains is really enormous because there could be so many people in the future and and their lives could be could be so much better if we if we make the right decisions. Which is like an area where we have like a lot, a lot of overlap. And you know, I've been reading about your apocalypse aversion project and there's a ton of overlap between the kind of things that you're saying and the kind of things that that I'm often saying and that eighty thousand hours is 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 writing about. Right. So the the idea of 80,000 hours, I gather, what, that's how many hours there are in a career. That, we should say, is, of course, as you know, the name of this organization that you're the head of research of. Yeah. And was founded, I guess, by Will McCaskill and others. I've actually had a conversation with him in the, in the kind of distant past. So the idea is you've got these, if you want to devote some of your time to doing good and you're young, 
I mean, I take it I don't have 80,000 hours of career left. We would probably agree. <laughs> no, but me neither, unfortunately. You never know. I mean, maybe one of your uh, people will invest a lot of money in life extension. And, and, uh, <laughs> I, I think that's a, one of our lists of like promising, promising areas that we haven't looked into quite so much yet. <laughs> well, my goal is to live until life expectancy is increasing by more than one year per year. And yeah. <laughs> okay. If you, if you do the math. But anyway, I think you engage largely with young people, college age and so on. And, and so you're, you're, you're talking to people who have many tens of thousands of hours left in their career. And the idea is, I gather, if you want to spend some of them doing good, let's think about that clearly. Yeah, basically. So yeah, so 80,000 hours would be, I think it's like 40 hours by 50 weeks a year over, over a 40-year period. It would be like the number of hours that you might expect to work over a career. And given that you're going to be spending so much time and a lot of people, especially our readers, want to improve the world with their career, it makes sense to spend a significant fraction of time figuring out, you know, how could I, how could I do more good with, with all of that time that I'm, that I'm going to be spending working? Yeah, and, and I guess the, the broader goal of the organization is to provide research and, and advice to people in order to allow them to have more impact with their career. And I guess a, a lot of the materials are kind of focused on, on younger people, I guess like 18 to 30. But at least on, on, on a podcast, I know we have a lot, of, a lot of older listeners who are in the middle of their career and kind of maybe using the information that we're providing in the interviews and the problems and potential solutions that we discuss on there to have more impact even you know in their, in their, in their 40s or 50s or, or 60s. Is it possible to say like kind of what some of the most common confusions you have to dispel? I mean, not to put it too condescendingly, but, but you know, yeah. if, if some college freshman comes up to you and says, here's what I'm planning to do, what, what's a common thing you have to try to dissuade them from doing? Yeah, I think maybe the thing that we spend the most amount of time talking about relative maybe to other sources of career advice is getting people to think a lot about the different problems in the world and trying to find a problem that has a really large scale. So, you know, if you succeed in making a dent on this problem, it benefits a lot of people or animals in a, in a, in a really big way where, you know, it's plausible that you're going to be able to make progress. And like, it's not already saturated with lots of people trying to fix it, you know, taking all the low hanging fruit already. And where there's potentially a good personal fit for you where, you know, you have like relevant skills or relevant passion, or you're in a country where you can actually work on that problem, that sort of thing. So I think, yeah, mo most career advice, you know, even career advice that is thinking about, you know, how can you potentially improve the world doesn't tend to have that focus on like finding the right problem that's a match for you and, and a match for like what, what the world most needs. And that's something that we spend quite a lot of time thinking and thinking and writing about. Mm -hmm. And I guess there's kind of two main dimensions. I mean, they need a problem they're genuinely interested in because they need to be motivated. And then they have a particular skill set that they may be able to apply. Skill set may include money, right? I know one, one thing that Peter has said for some time, and I know is, is kind of part of the idea, is that, you know, you should ask yourself, is, is, your, is your labor most efficiently spent going to work for, say, an NGO, going and handing out mosquito nets or something, or going to Wall Street becoming ridiculously wealthy and giving some of that money to people who will go hand out mosquito nets and things. Right. That's a, I've always thought that was kind of a dicey thing because, you know, it's, it's easy to go to Wall Street with good intentions. You know, there's a famous phrase about people who go to Washington, D.C. as public servants. They came to do good and stayed to do well. <laughs> but still, this is one of the fundamental questions, I guess, you get people to ask themselves, right? 
Yeah, exactly. So I guess one way in which we're like maybe a little different than other sources of advice is that we do get people to potentially open their mind and consider the full range of different ways that they might be able to contribute to solving really important pressing problems. And I guess, you know, obvious ones would be like working at an NGO like I do, and there's lots of ways to have impact there. But, you know, maybe you should, especially once you have a problem in mind, it might be that a more effective approach to, you know, solving 1% or 10% of that problem might be to go into politics or to go into policy formation. Perhaps it makes sense to go into research, but, you know, become an academic or do R&D in a business. And yeah, another another approach is to potentially just go and try to make a bunch of money and then and then figure out, you know, how can I contribute to solving this problem by giving away, you know, substantial sums to whoever might be able to have the biggest impact on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's not to say that that, you know, in some cases and for some people, that might be the, the, the right way to have a larger impact. You know, for other people, they're going to be better suited to politics or the problem that they want to work on is one where, you know, the main bottleneck is something to do with politics rather than to do with funding. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of about a matter of like finding a match between, you know, your, yourself and your skills and your passions. And then, you know, a problem that you might go and work on that, that the world really needs to uh, desperately solved. And then also trying to find the approach that really deals with, I guess, yeah, we, we call it the main bottleneck or like, you know, what is the thing that's holding back progress on, on, on fixing this problem in the biggest way? Okay. And, you know, I think a lot of people would associate with effective altruism, the kind of example I just mentioned, mosquito nets, you know, because there yeah. is this idea that, well, this is this kind of calculation you do and you can say, well, how, how do you save more lives with mosquito nets or distributing vaccines or something, you know, whatever. And you can do the math, but it sounds like you and I have something in common, which is that we're concerned about long-term threats to the planet, either truly existential threats, although, you know, honestly, most catastrophes would not kill every single human on the planet. But still, you know, you'd rather not learn your lesson the hard way, right? You know, uh, the way way World War I and World War II taught us lessons in the Black Death or whatever. And so I'm curious... I mean, I'll, I'll tell you know some of the things I know you you've thought about. I've thought about like bioweapons, for example. Yeah, you know, very challenging problem. You know, given the growing accessibility of the things you need to design a bioweapon, very challenging thing. There are, there are lots of other things I could list that I that I worry about, but I'm wondering. You're in touch with, you know, people kind of coming out of college and stuff. You've got a sense of of the vibe. I'm wondering how many of these people are coming out of college concerned about things like that. My experience is that if you if you say to people, I'm worried about the long term health of the planet. If you say that to like young people, they go, oh, yeah, climate change. And, you know, climate change is an important problem. I just don't think it's the only one. And yet I think it it soaks up an overwhelming majority of the attention. So far as I can tell, among people who think about long-term threats to the planet. Is that your experience? Yeah, let's see. So I suppose, yeah, I, I spend a lot of my time making the podcast and we have other people who do one-on-one advising for people who, who apply for it. And maybe they're more in touch with, with yeah. what young people I think today. My impression is that people have all kinds of different views about what are the most pressing problems or, or, what, or what they're most passionate about. I guess within people who are focused on global catastrophes or you know preserving the future of humanity, I think climate change is probably the biggest grouping. It is a topic that's gotten you know a lot of coverage over the years and makes a lot of sense. Like we have a pretty good we have, we have a really good idea of the nature of the problem and, and how we would fix it. So it makes sense that it's one that's extremely salient to people. I think people are open to other ideas as well when when you when you point out, well, 
let's say we're just trying to make civilization more resilient, more robust, make the future go better. Uh, and if you say, you know, another really significant problem is that the United States and China might go to war and have a nuclear war, and then it would just completely derail everything. You know, people are completely open to that. And if they can see a way of working on that, maybe that's a better fit for their skills than they could work on that instead of climate change. I guess, yeah, other issues. I mean, we've been on this pandemic thing for many, many years. Uh, we made, I think, like a 10 hours worth of material on, on how to prevent a really bad pandemic back in 2017 and, and, and 18. And sometimes you get a little bit of skepticism from people, but it, we just know from history that there's lots of lots of pandemics. And that's another way that things could could really go off the, off, off the rails. And obviously, I think you'll be getting so less, no difficulty. Yeah, you'll be <laughs> yeah. getting less skepticism in the, in the next few years, I think, than you did in the previous few, probably. Yeah. So... No, we're not kind of against any specific kind of problems that people are already interested in working on. But I suppose we want to like open their minds and get them to maybe think in a quantitative way, you know, consider like many different options and then try to choose the one where they think they can do the, do the most good rather than go with kind of the one that's most salient to them or the one that they heard about earliest, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is kind of an easy thing to potentially slip into. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, one thing about climate change is, as you said, we have a pretty clear idea of what to do about it. I mean, not all the questions are answered. For example, Do you need an international agreement with teeth that actually, you know, sanctions countries that don't comply, you know, don't aren't reducing their carbon emissions? Or will it work to do it in a more normative way, you know, with kind of peer group pressure where some nations say, hey, we're doing our part. Don't you want to do your part? And, you know, the Paris Accord is kind of is kind of a halfway between the two. I mean, it's on paper, but there are no it doesn't really have teeth. And and it seems to be having some effect. And it's a very interesting question, how many of these problems we can solve normatively. But but then you get into other problems and, you, you know, you, you, things aren't even that clear, right? I, I mean, you've you've wrestled with this, presumably. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, we, we could spend hours uh, to do the podcast. We have spent hours talking about climate change and you know, the various arguments in favor of, you know, spending your career working on that and, you know, various arguments that are like might be not as impactful as other things. The main arguments in favor would be that we have a great understanding of of the problem. We know that it's going to be a serious issue. So we're quite quite confident that there's you know a large scale. And also we have like a pretty good idea about what to do about it. There's quite a lot of different, uh, I guess we use the word tractable. There's lots of different kind of tractable approaches to to ameliorating it that you can have reasonable confidence in that you've that you've got a got a good shot. I guess, yeah, one is taking the politics and kind of international treaty route. Maybe the one that in my in my in my heart I perhaps feel most optimistic about is just trying to drive down the cost of renewable energy. So it's like solar R and D and scaling that up and then research into batteries. Because that's one that, you know, if a bunch of people just go away and do the science and then figure out a way to make this cheaper than other stuff, it doesn't mm-hmm. kind of require any virtue on the part of other countries or any cooperation because they'll just implement it in, the, in in their own self-interest. So should I buy a Tesla? I, I'm not going to, but I mean, it, <laughs> but I'm serious in the sense that there are people who say, well, if you really do all the math, I mean, let's look at what it takes to make these batteries. Let's look at and remember that, you know, ultimately this depends heavily on how much you and your area are paying for electricity. That's what's going to, you know, go going to go anything. Is it your view that it's just a safe bet that pretty much wherever you are, say in America, an electric vehicle all told has a lower carbon footprint? This is very much outside of my area of expertise. Okay, um, never mind. I think... Because <laughs> I'm well, not going to okay. buy a Tesla. But, but nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> I think, what's what's going on there? I mean, I think I used to be like very skeptical of electric cars. So, so for one, there's more embodied energy in manufacturing them. 
that was very much true in the past. And I think it probably is somewhat still true today. And obviously, if you're then getting the electricity from coal-fired power stations, then there's a whole lot of emissions that just kind of kind of hidden from you. I think that that is gradually changing as you know less electricity is generated from coal and, and, and more from other sources. And these cars are becoming less heavy and less difficult to manufacture. I mean, if I had, you know, $30,000, $40,000, $50,000 to spend trying to reduce climate change, I wouldn't spend it <laughs> on, a, on a car. <laughs> I, probably, I think I could find a, be- a better way to use it. But buying a, buying a Tesla or buying solar panels for that matter, it probably does prompt like some of that money then goes towards research and development to make those kinds of cars and those kind of batteries cheaper or the solar panels cheaper. And in the long term, driving down the cost of those products is probably the largest effect that it has and probably makes it like, my, my guess is that it's a net positive, but we're, we're really off okay. <laughs> really off piece for me. I, I think I'm gonna, my next car will probably be at least a hybrid, conceivably an, yeah. a, a, an all electric vehicle. So back to these kinds of long-term risks to the planet, what other ones do you, so there's, there's bioweapons, there's also the inadvertent release, as may have happened, for all we know, in the case of COVID, uh, in other words, the accidental release from a laboratory that where they were working with good intentions to understand the nature of the nature of the disease and the prospects for future mutations that would might increase lethality or transmissibility or something. So there's that. What are other kind of close to existential risks or at least long term risks facing the whole planet that you personally prioritize? Yeah, so we've covered some of the big ones. Yeah, we've got bioweapons as well as as natural natural pandemics. We've got climate change. We've got a great power war or a nuclear war of kind of of, of any kind. Then I guess we've got risks from just other emerging technologies, of which AI is maybe the maybe the most prominent one. So if you had you know an advanced AI deployed in some really important function uh, or you know given a lot of a lot of influence, and we haven't figured out how to make it aligned with our interests, I guess, is the, is, is the term that people use, or just more broadly to make sure that, that these tools do the kinds of things that we want, then there's some risk that it could really go off the rails and, and, and do a bunch of damage. And make, make too many paper clips. In the, in the, in the, that's, the most, that's a paradigmatic thought experiment, right? Suppose you tell a, an AI to, what, make as many paper clips as possible, and it... <laughs> yeah, I think we've somewhat moved on from, from that thought experiment. That, that one goes back to the, to the late 2000s. Because that does not we, concern me. It's not, probably, wasn't, probably wasn't the best branding, yeah. Um, I mean, just mainstream people who are studying machine learning, trying to figure out how to make you know, AI systems do useful stuff, they regularly find that, that these systems end up doing stuff that they didn't intend and potentially doing things that they, that they really wouldn't lack if they were scaled up into the real world. Like we already have examples of deployed algorithms that recommend things to people that end up trying to manipulate them to potentially like, you know, have particular views because that makes them more likely to stay on the site, which probably wasn't necessarily intended and the effects weren't thought through. So, you know, we can expect machine learning or AI to be able to do a lot more stuff in 20, 30 years. But we, you know, in the systems that we have now, which are relatively weak, we already see issues with them not doing what we not what we intended and, and potentially causing damage. So I think it's kind of just a projection forward of, of that into the future. But, you know, AI is kind of one of these emerging technologies. But I expect that, you know, over the next century, we'll, we'll see other things, you know, arising where... Whenever humanity does something completely new for the first time, especially when it's producing something that is able to spread and, and, and have a large influence, and then there's some risk that it could go wrong. And we should probably have people looking out for those possibilities and trying to figure out how to avoid them. Yeah, there's, there's also with AI and other things like just things evolving in a context of intense international competition. Let's say we avoid an actual war between China and the US, but they are developing AI in a context of, of intense suspicion of what the other one is doing with AI, or to my mind, 
in a way more troubling still, they are deciding how to regulate human genetic engineering in a context of fear and suspicion. So they're like, you know, somebody comes along and says, well, shouldn't we like put some regulations on like what, you know, kinds of things parents can try out when in creating babies? And somebody else says, wait a second, you know, the Chinese are, are creating these super smart, super strong people who will vanquish us someday. And so it has to be, you know, no holds barred in terms of what people can do or in a way more troubling still, the Pentagon should have this 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 huge budget devoting to creating these super smart super warriors. You know, this is a real concern to me in, in a number of areas. Maybe this is a really good segue to introducing the Apocalypse Aversion Project, which is, I guess, this new book and maybe like broader project that you're thinking of pursuing over the next few years. Yeah, I mean, I, I hope it'll be a new book. I mean, the way that part developed is that I, I had had a newsletter for a while called the Non-Zero Newsletter. A few months ago, like everybody else, I decided to create a paid version to help keep it going. And, and I decided that the paid version would be more clearly focused than the average issued newsletter on this thing I'm calling the Apocalypse Aversion Project. Somewhat tongue-in-cheek title, not as tongue-in-cheek as I'd like, right? Because I do think there's a real <laughs> risk of things going horribly awry. And, you know, it's kind of an extension of my book, Non-Zero, which had this whole argument about, you know, looking at all of human history as an exercise in kind of game theory and, and as new technologies coming along and people often deploying them to successfully play non-zero-sum games, sometimes zero-sum games, whatever. But anyway, by the end of the book, I'm arguing that, you know, where we are now is kind of on the threshold of global community, you could say. You know, my book had charted the growth in the scope and depth of social complexity from kind of hunter-gatherer village to, you know, ancient, you know, city-state, ancient state, empire, nation-state. And it's like, you know, increasingly we are close to having what you could call global social organization. And as has happened in the past, there's non-zero-sum logic behind moving to kind of a higher level of social organization in the sense that there are a number of problems that the world faces that can be described as non-zero-sum relationships among nations. Climate change is one. It's broadly speaking in the interest of, of nations everywhere, although different nations are impacted differently by climate change, but still the average nation is better off by cooperating on this and, and even sacrificing to some extent. So long as other nations agree to sacrifice, then it makes sense. And then you you bring the non-zero-sum problem to a win-win solution. And all the problems I've been describing, I think, are, are like that. An arms race is like that. Nuclear arms race is like that. You can both save money and reduce the chances of catastrophe by exercising mutual restraint. That's what an arms agreement is. And I now think we're going to see, you know, again, we need to think about whole new kinds of arms races, bioweapons, weapons in space. Human genetic engineering is an arms race. You know, AI is an arms race. And so the idea grows out of my whole kind of non-zero project. I guess kind of a distinctive feature of my project I've, I've really become more and more aware of since I started writing about it in the newsletter. And in fact, in the last issue, it kind of really hit home is that, you know, my view is it definitely is important to start thinking about what the solutions to these problems would look like. In some cases, it's very challenging. But at the same time, we need to recognize that right now, the world's political system is not amenable by and large to implementing the solutions anyway. And, and there's, there's another big thing that has to happen aside from figuring out 
how to solve the problems is creating a world where there is less intense competition among nations, less suspicion among them, and also less strife within them. It's like the United States is in no position to agree to anything ambitious on the international front. We just don't have our act together politically. And to deepen the challenge, one of the big political factions, the kind of ethno-nationalist faction, is very suspicious of this whole international governance thing, this whole international institutions, international agreements. So it seems to me that we have to work on those fronts to reduce the amount of international strife, the amount of domestic strife at the same time, and I think the problems we face there can largely be subsumed under the heading uh, the psychology of tribalism. That's a catchphrase. You know, some people don't like the phrase for various reasons, and some of these reasons are good, but people kind of know what I mean. Well, if they don't know what I mean, I mean, I don't <laughs> just mean rage and hatred and violence. I mean, unfortunately, in a way, the problem is subtler than that. It gets down to cognitive biases like confirmation bias a bias that I think gets too little attention called attribution error, which we can talk about if we have time. But the the point is we are naturally inclined, you know, I would say by natural selection, which I wrote about in my book, The Moral Animal, to, um, you know, to just have a biased kind of accounting system. People naturally think they contributed more to the successful project than they did. They think they have more valid grievances than the other side. And this this plays out at the level of political parties, at the level of nations, and, and so on. And so I think we have to tackle what is in some ways a, you know, a psychological problem as we tackle the policy problems. And that's maybe what's a little distinctive about my the focus as I see where I think my project is heading. Yeah. I mean, among people who are worried about you know, the impact that artificial intelligence might have in the future, I think one of the scenarios that they're most worried about is that there is a race to deploy really advanced AI systems either because of you know, military uses or international competition or commercial competition for that matter. So I guess like across almost all of these issues, it, it does seem like it would make a huge contribution if countries got along better and felt less competitive pressure. And I guess if people were just in general more, more coordinated, I guess we talk about this as global coordination or you know international international coordination another big class of ways that things can go wrong is just outright error you know everyone thinks that something is safe for example and then they do it and it turns out that it's dangerous and it's not it's nothing to do with kind of coordination problems it's just like human frailty and that we make mistakes sometimes for example you could have a situation where everyone agrees that we should have research into some very dangerous virus in order to protect ourselves from it and we think that the labs are safe and that it can't escape but then it turns out that it does just because humans humans are error prone but yeah the coordination one is a huge and really important class yeah, what, what do you think you're going to write in the book about how we ought to tackle that? Because it's kind of a problem that's as, as, as old as time and we are, we're kind of muddling through at the moment. How could we make things better? I think it's, it's very challenging. I mean, what you just said brought to mind the thing about, you know, viruses escaping from labs. You know, it's important to understand what happened with this, how this pandemic got started, right? It's always good to have clarity. And You see two different kinds of forces impeding that, I think. You have, on the one hand, the far right in America. Well, I wish it were far right. It actually represents a fair number of people. But saying, well, it it came from a bioweapons lab, even that that it was intentionally released. You hear that from, like, Peter Peter Navarro, who is a high-ranking official in the Trump administration, thinks there's a good chance it was intentionally released. And, like, when you think about it, it really doesn't make sense for China to release a biological weapon in their own country. But, a bit of a high risk move. <laughs> kind of high risk. <laughs> but um, but anyway, you, on the one hand, you hear that. And then on the other hand, there are scientists 
who have been involved in this so-called gain-of-function research, which has the best intentions, right, of, of learning more about the viruses, who, who are discouraging looking into the possibility that that's what happened, that it was an innocent kind of release from a lab. So that's, I mean, I don't know if that was worth the tangent, but the point is that it's just an example of how subtle human biases, there's on the one hand an ideological bias there, And on the other hand, what you might call a a different kind of self-serving bias, impeding our view. But I guess the the main thing I'm trying to say is, I think that sadly, in a way, the the, I mean, those are both subtle examples, in a way, of the psychology of tribalism. They're both people who are who are trying to defend the interests of their tribe, and I I bring those up because they are such subtle examples, in a way. And I think you know we have to attack the problem on all fronts. And it calls for a lot of self-reflection. And I'm genuinely, I I have not figured out yet how you, I mean, there is more and more attention to this problem. The so-called psychology of tribalism, certain kinds of cognitive biases are getting attention, certain aren't. But I'm really curious, there's probably some people you're associated with there who would have good ideas about this, is how do you mobilize people? You know, how do you get them to recognize the connection between, say, on the one hand, just getting people to be a little less reactive on social media, a little more reflective, and like saving the world, you know, in the sense of making it at least incrementally less likely that we will have a big bioweapons incident or AI will get out of control, you know, because the calmer and more rational the discourse on social media the more likely the world is to handle these problems wisely because there will be less internal strife in nations and there will be less international strife. And, you know, I'm not by my nature like a movement organizer. And yet yet I think think something along the lines of a movement needs to to happen here. And again, there are things moving in that direction. Yeah, I mean, if we could get people to be kind of more thoughtful, more careful in how they acted, more careful in how they how they thought about things, less reactive, potentially, I guess, less less vengeful, that, that kind of thing, more more just inclined towards, towards cooperation. It seems like it would put us in a much better position or, you know, you'd be more optimistic about humanity's prospects. I guess, you know, if I'm like applying my kind of mindset where I'm trying to like, you know, analyze, is this the thing that I would, you know, want to spend my career on? My main concern, I guess, is just that it seems like a really heavy lift. You know, people have been trying to <laughs> encourage people to have these virtues since the beginning of, like, since, since since there are written records. And, you know, people aren't all bad. And we have made a bunch of progress in, you know, civilizing ourselves and you know, finding ways to control our, our worst instincts. But I suppose if I was like one person considering using my career on this, I'd think like, you know, do I have a really good angle that's different or like I think is really going to move the needle and like change how a lot of people think or how a lot of people behave? And, you know, I might go into it if I, if, if I did have an, an idea for that, something that would like, you know, make a difference given that there's lots of people already talking about this or it's like it's a, it's a kind of well-known problem. But yeah, it seems like it could be hard. And maybe just saying the things that have been said many times before, I guess I'm not sure how much it's going to change global culture. You know, you're right. People have been saying this forever. And you're right, we've made progress. And yet, I was just reading this book on the origins of World War One. It's called The Sleepwalkers. And here's a line from it. It says, this was a world in which aggressive intentions were always assigned to the opponent and defensive intentions to oneself. Okay, so this is in large part how the war got started. When they mass troops, it's a, it's a threat. And maybe we should stage a preemptive strike. When we mass troops, it's just defense, right? I mean, first of all, what that shows is Failing to correct for just a fundamental, natural human cognitive bias can get millions of people killed. And B, 
we actually haven't made much progress. You just look at international affairs today and look at how in the American media, the behavior of, say, Iran, China, and Russia, probably the three countries most consistently considered adversaries, look at the way their behavior is reported in the American media as opposed to the way America's behavior is reported. When they talk about um, uh, American military maneuverings, it's always defensive. And moreover, there's always reporting about the political constraints that make it hard for our leaders to behave more charitably on the international front or something. You you generally don't see that in the foreign reporting. So, you know, you're right. It's a heavy lift. But if you're interested in this category of problems that's like different from the mosquito net problem, these these quasi-existential threats, well, you're in for a heavy lift, right? I, I mean, I mean the whole the whole nature of the thing is uh, in other words, it's a kind of intervention that may have a low probability of success because the magnitude of the success is so high. If you succeed, it still has what economists call a high expected return, right? So that's the nature of the endeavor. So I'm sticking with it. You know? Yes. <laughs> It reminds me of this joke idea I read once, I can't remember where, for how to reduce the risk of nuclear war, which is that before any world leader can get the authorization to to use nuclear weapons, they have to get together with all of the other leaders who have the authorization to to use nuclear weapons and take MDMA together. (laughs) (laughs) There's that. In order to to generate potentially some, some kind of, yeah. Sense of, sense of sense of belonging and sense of, sense of love for one another. I mean, obviously that doesn't work, but I, well, I mean, actually, it's an interesting idea honestly, to explore, I'm right? Not, yeah. I'm not sure it wouldn't, but, <laughs> well, but, but it's not going it to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that's one we call a not, not a very tractable policy proposal. I mean, yeah, this is making me think about, you know, if we narrow down the, the, the approach or, or the problem a little bit, then maybe we'll be able to, you know, get more leverage on this. So if the project was to get more mindfulness and meditation and reflectiveness among the US foreign policy elite, to me, that sounds like a better project because you know it's hard to change any any single one person's personality. You know, it's a whole bunch of work to convince people to meditate every day, and you know, a lot of people don't stick with it. So, kind of, what, we want each person who we convince to you know, generate like a lot of a lot of value in terms of making the world more 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 stable. And if you if you could just get the U.S. president doing it, or you know, other other military decision makers, then that seems like it you know carries a bigger punch. Yeah, and I mean, I'm an advocate of mindfulness. For example, in the case of social media, if you're doing mindfulness meditation, trying hard to be kind of in touch with the way your feelings are guiding your thoughts and so on, you're probably more likely on social media to pause before retweeting something just because it makes you feel good, just because it it seems to validate your tribe or diminish the other tribe, retweeting it without even reading the thing you're retweeting. You know, you're less likely to do that. You're less likely to react in anger. And there's a lot of subtler things that you're less likely to do. So I'm, I'm an advocate of all that. At the same time, even I wouldn't want the world's fate to depend on <laughs> convincing all the world's leaders to be mindful. I mean, in addition, there's the fact that in a way, strictly speaking, mindfulness is a neutral tool, right? I mean, I think it does tend to make us better people, better citizens. At the same time, you can, in principle, use mindfulness as a cognitive skill to do bad things. So I guess I don't want to, I, I, and I do talk about mindfulness in the newsletter. I don't want to confine, I wouldn't want to confine our repertoire to that. And, and so there are other things I like to emphasize, like, you know, cognitive empathy. That isn't like emotional em- empathy. It's not feeling your pain empathy. It's just like understanding, trying to understand your perspective. So to get back to the World War One case, it would be like, 
working very hard to really understand why this other country is doing what it's doing. And I mean, there's actually a recent example, fairly recent, Russia massing troops on the Ukrainian border. I don't applaud that. I don't know. There's a lot of things Russia's done I don't applaud. But it does seem to be the case that there had been a massing of Ukrainian troops on this dividing line where there's a de facto almost division. And it's just good to know. It doesn't justify it. It's just good to know this didn't come out. of. It doesn't mean they're planning to attack. Apparently, they were sending a signal like don't even think about it. And then they withdrew their troops. And anyway, so... You know, I can imagine, just leave aside whether you're interested in mindfulness, just kind of programs in trying to convince people of the importance of cognitive empathy. And it can have, you know, very self-serving value. It can make you better at negotiating and things and trying to make people better at it, I guess. So if we apply this kind of approach to, let's imagine that we're trying to use this approach, say, to stop a really bad pandemic. I guess the scenarios maybe that we're most worried about are perhaps like bioweapons from North Korea. I guess possibly, you know, in decades time, some bios, synthetic biology researchers who really go off the rails and like try to try to make a pandemic that's going to kill as many people as possible. And then I guess you've got like, you know, escape of something from a from research lab, maybe maybe a research lab that's doing good. If we can make people more reflective, get people to be more mindful with North Korea, I mean, I guess it'd be great if we get the North Korean elite to do that. A little bit difficult to do. But I suppose in that case, you could argue that getting people in US foreign policy to understand where North Korea is coming from, even if we think they're completely evil, might reduce the risk of a miscalculation that would then like cause the North Koreans to retaliate. So it's a bit hard in the case of, you know, the the synthetic biology researcher gone rogue, because you'd have, have to reach potentially so many people in order to to prevent that risk. I, I might be inclined to go for, for a technological solution to, to that one, because you kind of don't know who you have to convince to start meditating. Yeah, but see, what I, what I would say there about the connection I see between, you know, mindfulness and these various kinds of cognitive interventions is here's the way I look at that is like any global treaty that is up to the challenge in the realm of bioweapons, synthetic weapons, whatever, is going to infringe on national sovereignty to an extent that we're not used to. Because so long as any lab anywhere in the world is kind of a rogue lab, is not regulated, is not subjected to a degree of transparency that is necessary to prevent this kind of thing, then we're in trouble. And if you want, you know, Americans often have trouble understanding this. If you want other nations to submit to that degree of transparency, we're going to have to do the same, okay? So we're going to have to agree that, you know, whether it's international inspectors or electronic monitoring equipment that's accessible to international, the international community or whatever, we're going to have to sacrifice some, uh, in a way, it's not a sacrifice of, of sovereignty, because when you think of sacrificing sovereignty, you think of losing control over your future. No, you're actually gaining control of your future, gaining one kind of sovereignty by sacrificing another. But in any event, America's political system right now is nowhere near being ready to sign on to meaningful changes in in the calibration of sovereignty of this kind. So what do you need? Well, you need an America less consumed by strife. You need more specifically, and, and this is advice I would give to my tribe, like the blue tribe in America, is do fewer things that gratuitously antagonize and alienate the red tribe. Because the more freaked out they get, the more they're going to oppose these kinds of policies that we need to keep the world safe. So this is where it gets back to what I said about thinking that there's a kind of a psychological revolution 
that's needed before we can implement all the policies we need. And, and, and so, or to get back to cognitive empathy, like if the blue tribe understands the red tribe better, we will understand what is and is not productive feedback to give them. And I mean, I'm telling you, the blue tribe spends a ton of time doing counterproductive messaging in this sense, making Trump supporters feel exactly what they fear that we look down on them, that we hold them in contempt, that we think they're stupid. Yeah, it's an interesting one because I guess sometimes people do that because they have these kind of aggressive emotions. But other times it happens just because people feel like they want to tell the truth or they want to call people out on on bad behavior. And I guess if you want to like clamp down on this and you need to sometimes say to people, you know, it would feel good. And in some sense, it like might be righteous to say this thing, but think about the actual impact that this is having on discourse and how people feel. And maybe in reality, it's going to make the, the world a worse place, even if it's true. Or like, you know, even if in some sense, it's justified to be frustrated with someone. Right. I mean, none of us lives our lives going around telling everyone the truth. You know, my, <laughs> you have, my, you have unattractive children. You know, nobody, nobody says that. And, and so there is that, but there's also... I think, yes, we should understand that it doesn't always make sense to say something you feel is true, but I think we should also be examining whether the things we think are true are true. And this, you know, in this particular context of kind of red-blue America brings me to this, I think, underappreciated cognitive bias attribution error. So the way that works is, you know, it has to do with the question of when somebody does something like good or bad, do you say to yourself, well, yeah, that's the kind of person they are. Or do you say, well, they did that because of extenuating circumstances? Like you're, you're in a checkout line. Somebody's rude to the clerk in front of you. Do you say, that guy's a jerk. He's just a rude person. Or do you say, well, maybe he just got some super bad news about his family or something. And he's just in a bad mood. He's stressed out for some reason. Well, it turns out that the pattern is in, in human cognition that when we're talking about friends and allies or ourselves and we do something, they do something good, we attribute it to the kind of people they are, to their character, their disposition. If they do something bad, we explain it away. Oh, it was peer group pressure. She didn't have her nap that day, whatever. With our enemies and rivals, if they do something bad, we attribute it to the kind of people they are. If they do something good, we say, oh, they were just showing off or that, you know, or they had just done some ecstasy or something, you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, it, it doesn't reflect their true yeah. character. You know, so in this tribal context, you look at Trump supporters and they do something you think is bad, they oppose immigration, and you say, well, yeah, they're racist. Well, they may be. Some are, some are. It depends on how you define racism and a whole lot of things. But the point is, once you've defined somebody as the adversary, you're naturally inclined to attribute the things they do you don't approve of to their character, as opposed to say, well, maybe, you know, this is a guy, he grew up, he got a good union job, his son can't get a good job, and he looks at the local meatpacking plant, and it's all immigrants doing the work. It could be that. We don't know. And so I think you're right. Part of it is you don't have to tell the truth. But part of it is also, you know, be be evaluating your conception of the truth. Yeah, yeah. Do you know if there's any research on how to, how to reduce this? Because I agree if we could get people to have that kind of bias in favor of their own stories. I, I can't remember where I, where I heard this, but apparently, you know, if, if you ask people to talk about a time that they kind of wronged someone else or harmed someone else, there's basically almost always exactly the same story structure. You know, we'll begin with like several days before about all of the mitigating circumstances and how they didn't intend. Right. And, and, but of course, like we don't come up with those stories whenever someone else screws us over. That's exactly and, you know, right. To be fair, I guess we, we don't know what the mitigating circumstances are. So it's easy to, to assume the worst. But yeah, I'd be really interested to know if there's any research on how to get people to, to do that kind of perspective taking or try to brush yeah. things off more. 
I mean, and, and I would say you're right. We don't know enough about them to know the extenuating circumstances. But if it's a friend or ally or family member, your mind at least starts doing that exploration. Well, what could it have been? My daughter was mean on the playground. Did she get a nap that day? Did she do this? You know, whereas a kid is mean to your daughter on the playground. It's like that kid is trouble. Right. Now, as for exercises, I'm not that well versed. It's a good question. I mean, when you're talking to the person, right, when you're in communication with them, there are exercises, right? It's not so hard then, but a lot of the problem comes with people that we wind up not communicating with. And also, I mean, here's a little kind of semi-extraneous thing that I learned in terms of framing conversations with people. I think you mentioned that I started this Blogging Heads TV thing about 15 years ago, And it was online conversations. And what we found is that you could take two bloggers who had been sniping about each other, had said only mean things about each other in print. You put them in conversation with each other and they had, and more in the way of civilizing instincts kick in. So little things like that can matter. But I think you're pointing to the kind of thing I need to get better versed in. And maybe people out there know and can tell me, but what are successful techniques for enhancing cognitive empathy and ways to motivate people to pursue it? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there's ways to do this that are like very time consuming or very difficult. But <laughs> like, yeah, if we want to reach hundreds of millions of people and shift culture, then ideally we want something that's in people's own own interests. Although, I mean, like this one definitely can be in your own interest because it's much nicer to go around thinking that people are mostly nice and not not trying to screw you over rather than constantly imagining imagining the worst. But yeah, maybe one thing that I think a tip that I'm, that I'm happy to share is whenever you notice that there's regular ways in which people are robbing you the wrong way, check if there's a systematic reason why things are set up such that that would happen, like even if what they're doing is completely reasonable. So recently I've been living with a, with, with a whole bunch of people and there's like a bunch of housework to do. And we noticed that there's like a bunch of stuff that wasn't wasn't getting done, basically a bunch of chores that no one was opting in for. And this was frustrating, frustrating people. But then as soon as we thought about it, we're like, oh, it's because it's not on the chore spreadsheet. So people don't actually get any credit for these ones because they weren't in our mind classified as kind of the work that you contribute to. And then as soon as you put them on this thing so that it's part of the system that works, then that kind of thing gets gets fixed. You also notice people often rub one another the, the wrong way in an organization. And if you think about it, it's because they have somewhat conflicting goals for the teams. So it's nothing personal. It's just that they have different objectives that to some extent are, uh, yeah, they're, they're sometimes intention. Yeah, well, like one, one finding is I think that uh, say you take two people from different ethnicities, maybe particularly in a, in a charged context like Northern Ireland, say Catholics and Protestants or something, you bring them together and some people like bring people together in the apparently naive hope that that will automatically build bridges. And it turns out to be the case that what you need to do is put them in a non-zero-sum situation, put them in some sense on the same team. They could be actually on the same team, on the same athletic team, or that you could just give them a common goal where they both benefit if they if they achieve the goal together. But structuring things that way can help somewhat resolve some of the more uh, divisive kind of tensions. Yeah. Here's a question out of left field that actually came from uh, someone on Twitter when, when I mentioned that, that we were going to be, be speaking. This person points out that I guess a very common thread through your work, especially in non-zero, is that it would be good if we could find more ways to get societies cooperating, people cooperating, you know, reducing problematic competition. But, but they ask like, in light of that, like, what, what does Wright think of the argument that societies have been substantially kept functional by competitive pressures and without fear of invasion or bankruptcy, both business and government tend to accumulate layer upon layer of rent seeking and sclerotic rules at great cost. So in some cases, we know there's benefits to, to competition and could, could we potentially have too little of it? 
Yeah, actually, my book, Non-Zero, had a chapter called War, What Is It Good For?, which, by the way, is a song that you're too young to remember, the title <laughs> of a song you're, you're too young to remember. But um, And the point was, actually, intense competition among nations makes things within the nations more non-zero-sum. You know, they, they all have a higher stake in successful collaboration, and it has led to a lot of improvements of various kinds, technological, organizational, and so on. It can also lead to bad things like the restriction of civil liberties and so on, but it can lead to cohesion. You know, I was happy to say, I think whatever good war may have done, it's now outlived its usefulness, given that, you know, nuclear weapons and a lot of other things. But the point is a good one. And, you know, one of the takeaways for me of that is that, you know, we, although I think we need more international governance in the sense of international agreements, institutions, I don't think we want global government with all that connotes, a kind of centralized, powerful thing that would, well, that would, among other things, put an end to the the dynamic that's being described there. You know, it's a difficult question, though, the role that competition plays in internal cohesion, because, well, I guess here's the chat. Here's the big challenge, it seems to me, that the good news is that people find internal cohesion easier when they see an external threat. The reason I say that's good news is because the planet has a lot of what you could call external threats, which we've been describing. Climate change, you know, pandemics, bioweapons, arms races. There are plenty of genuine threats to the planet that could kind of congeal us at the international level. The bad news is that it, it seems like in terms of human nature, in terms of what we're how we're kind of designed by natural selection, the, the kinds of external threats we, we respond most readily to are other human beings. I mean, look at the U.S. and China. It's like five years ago, there wasn't this intense sense of menace that there is. It's not a hard thing to trigger. And I'm not saying there's nothing to worry about, about China's behavior, but there isn't like 50 times as much to worry about now compared to five years ago. And yet, that is that is kind of the extent to which it's been amped up. And the reason is it's easy to point to foreign human beings and convince people that they're threatening. It's harder to point to more abstract threats and convince people they're worth, worth worrying about. I mean, I mean, there is a little more good news, which is that there was this classic social science experiment that would not be permitted now for ethical reasons, but it was in the 50s and they... Uh, there were boys in a, it's called a robber's cave experiment. There were, there were boys in summer camp, didn't know they were the subject of an experiment. And if they increased the zero-sum dynamics between the two groups of boys, they had these different names like the rattlers and the something else. I mean, they, they, they kind of turned them into tribes. They, they, they had their, their identity, but then they could either create zero-sum situations by like saying, okay, here's the, the picnic area. And one tribe gets there 20 minutes late, so all the food is eaten by the other tribe. Okay, that's zero-sum. And so they created a lot of tension between the groups. But then after getting them to a point where they hated each other, they created fake kind of global emergencies. Like they said, oh, the water supply to the camp has been disrupted. And, you know, I guess predictably, they overcame their animosity, worked together. And so it can be done. Right. But it's not as easy to marshal energy in the face of a more abstract threat, you know, compared to a a human threat. Mm. 
Yeah, it's it's really interesting. At the beginning of the COVID pandemic, there was a lot of concern about kind of social cohesion and kind of chaos, and that would see people turning on one another because there wouldn't be enough food, or there'd be like a there'd be a crime wave. You know, it's maybe a little bit hard to remember now, but I remember reading lots of stories about that in March, and it just runs so contrary to the psychology research, the sociological research on this, which just shows very clearly that when a society faces you know an external threat, that that everyone <laughs> is kind of in the same basket, people tend to pull together, and in fact, you see crime go down, you see cooperation go up because suddenly people feel like they're all part of this team that's fighting this collective struggle. Yeah, you see you see that during wars without a doubt. You know, people thought when they started bombing civilian cities that it would cause countries to surrender because it would be so unpleasant for civilians to be bombed. But quite the opposite, it caused them to form this like intense bond of people in a city and double down on, <laughs> on, on fighting the war that they were in. The one exception to this, interestingly, is sieges. So if you besiege a city and it gradually runs out of food over months and years, then people people turn on one another. So so it's not not, not in every instance, but yeah, in, in the case of a pandemic, it was it was very predictable. And it would be great. It would be great if we could maybe use this in some way. Although it maybe is a little bit stressful for people to constantly feel besieged and like be cooperating with their fellow citizens because they feel under threat. Yeah. By the way, the way the bombing of cities began in, in World War II was another case of where maybe successful cognitive empathy could have happened. The first case was an accident. The Germans didn't mean to bomb the civilian population, but but the Brits retaliated, and the war was on. The Brits assumed it was intentional. But anyway, it's a little surprising in America that the pandemic hasn't had more of a congealing effect. I mean, I would say in general, there has been an underappreciation. Well, there's two issues. I think there's still a little bit of an underappreciation of how non-zero sum the dynamics are globally. I think America is coming to realize that it's in our interest to help people around the globe. Anyone getting sick anywhere, to some extent, is a threat to us. But, you know, domestically, and I think this has largely to do with just the weird politics that were happening when the pandemic hit. But, you know, you wound up, you know, we've got these pro-mask and anti-mask tribes and and it's been pretty ugly. Yeah. The US is kind of the odd one out here, as far as I can tell. I, I live in the UK and I think initially it created like a very strong bond and more cooperation. Maybe that's now kind of waned, but I think maybe you know we'll probably probably get along better than better than we did before the pandemic, at least at least a little bit. I guess the US kind of at least to my knowledge, kind of stands at the top of the list in terms of how much this actually introduced more division. Yeah. I'm not sure we should call that the top of the list. It okay. sounds <laughs> a little more flattering than we deserve. Yeah. No, it's it's weird times, but you know, it gets back to something you said earlier. You said, well, I think you suggested this would be a legitimate study for a legitimate kind of cause for effective altruism is look at these machine learning algorithms that wind up governing people's conduct on social media, recommending videos to them and so on. I mean, it may be machine learning per se. It may be something less sophisticated, but the point is these are the uh, the algorithms that can wind up having pernicious effects, can draw people into extremism and and so on. And so in my way of looking at, at kind of the Apocalypse Aversion Project, that's like an intervention at the level of psychology. In other words, if you ask, why is America too divided politically to make meaningful progress on something like a, bio, a new bioweapons convention, the answer is partly in the algorithms. They have made things worse and so, you know, intervening in looking at a problem you were already considering the domain of effective altruism, I would say is doubly the domain of effective altruism in the sense <laughs> that it's about getting our species to a psychological state where we're capable of attacking all kinds of 
problems, you know, including yeah. transnational ones. Yeah, we we did an interview last year with Tristan Harris, who's mm-hmm. been a leader on like on, on really worrying about these issues and trying to figure out how can we make these algorithms and other designs of online services such that people don't, don't end up hating one another and having completely false beliefs, which seems like an incredibly important area. And like, especially if you can get involved in one of these companies that designs these services, then you can actually get enormous leverage because the amount of software engineering time relative to the amount of user time, is, it's, it's, a, it's a very intense ratio there. And, and I, don't think, I don't think Google is really, as an organization, excited about the idea that they're creating extremism and making people miserable. And probably like neither is Twitter. Hopefully they can reform their services so that, so that there's something that people on reflection are like happy that they use rather than something that they use kind of begrudgingly. Yeah, I don't think they're happy about that, but you know, they're driven by the profit motive. And so they tend to, I think, let their machines do what increases revenue. And, and, and that seems to have some bad side effects. And so it's kind of a challenge in a, in a regulatory sense. I mean, one, one thing I'd like to see is algorithm transparency, where they basically have to give us a better idea, like what is the algorithm? Make it make it public and allow, this might involve creating APIs or whatever, not that I know what an API is, but allow people to build software on top so that, like, I'd like a third-party company to come say to me, here's something you can put on top of Facebook or Twitter where it's got this slider here and you can, you know, you can define it, you know, however you want, you know, give me less tweets that fit this description or less tweets that lead me to react this way or whatever. And and we wouldn't be slaves to the really crude and rudimentary tools that Twitter and Facebook offer us, which is almost nothing, right? I mean, you have almost no control over what's being shown to you. So that's that's something I'd like to see. Yeah. While we're on technology, I just want to make kind of a pitch to you to uh, think about whether potentially a lot of people might be able to have more impact by focusing just on you know research and development or, or maybe maybe policy change. Uh, I guess the thing that I like about narrow policy changes and, and science and tech is that often just a small group of people who think that it's a good idea to create something and that it will improve the world can just go ahead and do it. And they don't have to convince, try to convince millions and millions of people or get this mass cultural change. Yeah, we actually had um, Andy Weber, who used to be kind of the point person on biological weapons and nuclear threats at the, at the Department of Defense. And he was saying he thinks that we can make a huge dent on the problem of bioweapons, like to some degree, like take them off the table as a, as a strategy that any country might consider by kind of combining the progress that we've made on mRNA vaccine manufacturing and also the progress that we're making on making it really cheap to sequence DNA. So yeah, he paints out this vision where, you know, scientists continue to figure out how to make mRNA vaccines work really well and how to make them quickly and cheaply. We continue to make it really cheap to sequence DNA at a mass scale. Then we can just, you know, in every house or at least every hospital, maybe every school, we can be like monitoring the ambient environment to see are there new viruses showing up and are those viruses spreading by basically doing DNA sequencing all over the place. And then if there is a new new virus or a new pathogen of, of any kind that is picked up and we discover that it's causing harm, well, hopefully we'll be able to pick it up really quickly, much quicker than we can now because we'll be sequencing everywhere. But then we can very quickly turn around an mRNA vaccine because mRNA vaccines can be modified to tackle different pathogens much, much more quickly than old vaccines could. And then, so if we, as long as we have the ability to manufacture tons of mRNA vaccines really quickly, then 
it would be kind of pointless to release a bioweapon because we would be able to, to defuse the challenge really, really quickly. And it's kind of an example where, you know, one option would be to try to convince everyone to not develop bioweapons, to make the, make the facilities safe, convince anyone who might want to like design such a bioweapon that's a bad idea. But maybe there's just kind of this technical patch that we can chuck on the top, which is, ah, oh, well, we just figured out how to make, make it not work anyway. So is he saying there, you can imagine a sensing system that would detect the deployment of a bioweapon, like immediately upon deployment? And so it couldn't get very far, or is he, he? I assume he's not saying you 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 would know when someone's working on one, is he? Or no, no. So so the idea would be, yeah, you could detect it like very soon after deployment, right. because of course you know the virus gets into the first person or the first few people, and it starts starts to spread. And then like I suppose the most powerful example would be that everyone kind of takes a test, it takes a you know swab in, in the morning to to check what what viruses they happen to have in them, or you know something that they could breathe into. But you know we can imagine it being pretty functional, even if you're only testing like every tenth person or something periodically, because you'd notice, oh, all of these new DNA sequences are showing up that aren't ones that we're familiar with seeing all the time. There's something new. And then you also notice if it like starts showing up more and more and more, then you can see that kind of a virus is taking off and spreading. And, and you can't detect it immediately, but you can potentially check it, you know, after a, a week, maybe even after it's been released, which is much quicker than we can than we can do today. And so can, like the reaction is much faster. So it's a kind of surveillance technology, although not in the usual sense. Not not yeah. in maybe the creepiest sense. But that leads to a question I kind of have for you. There are these various cases where well, and, and, and well, bioweapons is one where I mean, there's just various cases where, with a sufficiently intrusive surveillance system in the traditional sense, right, like cameras everywhere, you know, information technology surveillance, email being monitored, you can solve a lot of problems. But but that is a cost that a lot of us would find very unappealing, and it's you know it's this classic trade-off between security and liberty. And it's such an, uh, you know, kind of hard thing to even think about clearly often. I'm, I'm wondering in, in effective altruism, does that kind of thing enter the, the realm and people deal with it? And if so, how? Yeah, it's it's been discussed a bunch. I think probably the the first thing for a new dress listener to read might be I think the fragile world hypothesis by by Nick Bostrom, where he kind of lays out this thing of like imagine that we're in a world where it turns out to be really easy for someone or a small group to create something that could kill almost everyone in such a fragile world as he calls it. Almost the only way that humanity could survive might be to have this massive surveillance of everyone to make sure that no one does it so that we could constantly prevent them. Fortunately, it seems like we don't live in such a world as extreme as that, at least not yet. And hopefully, hopefully we never will. But looking into the policy issues here is actually on our list of promising things to do with your career that we haven't investigated a, a ton yet. It's something that People have written about, talked about a bunch, but I don't think there's like a huge literature on it. I mean, I think the basics of the story is going to be there's this trade-off between, you know, the risk that we fail to detect someone who's doing something incredibly dangerous that does end up then causing a global catastrophe versus the risk that we set up this system, which I think the, the phrase is like turnkey totalitarianism. If you're monitoring everyone all the time, it's going to be very easy for the government to suddenly just flip into this self-perpetuating authoritarian system where if you can detect if people are doing something dangerous with technology, then you can also detect whether anyone is trying to resist the regime. And so you would just be potentially stuck there forever, which is a global catastrophe of its own. So certainly at this point, it seems like the, the greater risk is that. <laughs> I'd be much more worried about this massive surveillance where you have a camera in every room, like just leading to a terrible and self-perpetuating political system. I suppose we could imagine in future that maybe we could find some way to ensure that the, techno- that the system couldn't be used or abused that way. And maybe the risks from technology could, could become greater. It's something worth looking into, but I'm kind of skeptical that that 
is something that we'll end up ever wanting to deploy. Yeah, it's tricky because, you know, if you just leave people to their own devices and they buy things that make them more secure and the free market system operates and provides it, they can start building these networks that are one flip of the switch away from being abused. Like these, uh, is it Ring? Is that the name of the camera company? The, the, you know, the camera's like on your doorstep. And then it's like in your interest to be alerted if your neighbor's camera sees something menacing. And then the police say, hey, if we tap into this network, we can do good things. And that's all true. There are benefits. But pretty soon you have a system that, you know, there's suddenly the next scare. You know, I mean, I was uh, I'm old enough to remember the run up to the Iraq war and Saddam Hussein has weapons. Of, there may be anthrax next door, you know, and you get a scare like that and and people say, sure, turn the whole thing over to the government. Yeah. One weakness of the thing is it would have to be global. You know, how are we going to get implementation of such a strong surveillance system in, in every country? Because then someone who wants to do something bad can just go to Somalia or, you know, whatever country doesn't have this system and potentially do, do the thing there. Maybe like a more narrow idea might be if you have access to, you know, the most dangerous technology, then the government might start monitoring your stuff much more. For example, you know, people who have access to the most serious state secrets, for example, they presumably get monitored a bunch by the government to check, you know, are they are they betraying betraying the government? Yeah, that, that might be some kind of middle ground that that helps, but without creating this risk of totalitarianism so so straightforwardly. You mentioned the Iraq war. You, you wrote in one of your blog posts recently that you thought kind of the psychological change, the mindfulness changes uh, that you're thinking of might have prevented the Iraq war. Yeah, what's what's the theory there? Well, a couple of things. I mean, first of all, cognitive empathy would have helped. I mean, it's funny. I was just, you know, Slate magazine is they do a slow burn podcast, I guess, once a year. And this time it's about the run up to the Iraq war. And I've listened to the first three. And because I was writing for Slate in 2003, I was part of an assemblage of a half a dozen people who were writing for Slate that they that they taped, that the people doing the podcast taped. And and uh, I don't know if I'll wind up, I'll probably be edited out. But anyway, the, the thing is very, the podcast is very good. And it's a reminder of how totally duped <laughs> we can be at any moment by government officials. But an example of cognitive empathy, which I gave in, in that conversation is like, you know, one thing people forget is at the time we invaded, the UN weapons inspectors were in Iraq. They left. We, we demanded they leave so that we could invade, which sounds crazy because they actually were, and people forget this too, but they were being allowed to inspect every site they asked to inspect. Now, it's true that Saddam Hussein, initially, he was kind of making them cool their heels a while. And even in the longer run, he was refusing to do certain things we demanded, like let his scientists leave the country to be interrogated. And I just said, well, you know, it's not hard to imagine reasons a dictator could not want scientists interrogated abroad other than them being part of a, an active WMD program. Maybe they knew about past crimes. Maybe he would feel humiliated in the eyes of his people. Maybe he was afraid they'd defect. There's a billion things. And yet back then, everything he did that we didn't like, we took as confirmation of the premise that he had something to hide. But And, and, and it's like, if you said back then, wait a second, could we look at this from Sodom's perspective? I mean, you'd be shouted down as an apologist. And and today, this, you see the same dynamic. If you say, well, could we just try to understand how the regime is looking at things in Russia and in, in, in China and Iran and North Korea, people call you an apologist. And, and I think that's one of the kinds of things we need to get over. 
Yeah, that issue of whenever you merely explain the perspective of another, you know, potentially hostile, potentially evil country, you're shouted down as an apologist. That's, that feels like an interesting, like narrow thing that maybe we could change that cultural thing because it seems like that alone could significantly improve discourse around international relations because it seems like people often just slip into making these terrible errors literally because they have not been allowed to talk about how does this other country think about it? like how do they conceive this given their own history and their and their own interests or at least at least the leaders at least understand kind of what. Putin Putin is thinking or, or calculating. That seems like a really valuable meme to spread. No, I, I, I agree. Like stigmatize the use of the word apologist. I don't mean be too harsh, but get people to agree that, no, that's just not cool. I mean, that, 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 that does not further discourse. If you think they are inaccurately characterizing what's going on in Tehran or Moscow, make the argument, but don't, don't try to sh- shout them down with a term that you know is meant to just exclude them from the conversation by calling them an Assad apologist or something. That's why, you know, when you said, yeah, I am, I do advocate mindfulness, but I recognize that that's not going to be the whole cure by any means. And I do think you need specific interventions of exactly that kind and just make things that were cool, uncool. Yeah, I guess it seems like there's maybe two classes here. One is changing people's emotional reactions, getting them to slow down and think about things. And then maybe there's also this these epistemic, like rationality focus towards where it's like getting people to think more clearly about what is really going on so they can actually have insights that that otherwise they would miss. And both of them seem really valuable interventions if, if we could make we could make progress on them at a societal level. But yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. I guess maybe the bottleneck is that a lot of this stuff, in, to some degree, is kind of boring compared to the memes that they have to compete with. Like, it's far more exciting to read about, like, how someone is really bad than to read about, here's how you could slow down and think about something something more carefully. So someone who can, someone who's really good at popularizing content, who's really good at figuring out how do we, how do we make this kind of snappy and engaging to deal with, maybe they could make make more progress. It's, it's going to be a bit of a hits-based business because like most of the time, most people making content don't get much of an audience, but every so often someone kind of, you know, breaks through. Like Jordan Peterson, for example, it's like a bunch of his stuff in some sense is quite boring. And yet he got this like massive audience. Now, whether it's good advice or not, <laughs> maybe we need like the Jordan Peterson of like calm down <laughs> and think carefully about foreign relations. I mean, it's a challenge because social media incentives so often work in the other direction, right? It's like, if you want to increase your number of Twitter followers you know, the best way is to buy into whatever incendiary language is working within your tribe and vilify the other tribe. There's a lot of perverse incentives here that work against calming down and trying to be rational. But, you know, I, I think it's the it's the thing we, we need to think about creatively. You know, that's why I'm, I'm interested in what you've done, you, you meaning the, the effector of altruism people, which is, you know, create kind of a movement that has certain values. I, I think you need... A group of people who, you know, there needs to be this kind of tribeless tribe thing. It's funny. I had been thinking of that term and even, I mean, I even have the tribeless tribe Twitter handle and have for years. I haven't done anything with it. But but when I had that conversation, I, I mentioned with Will McCaskill, who I guess is still, is he still president of 80,000 Hours? And Yeah, I think he's, he's at least one of the trustees. <laughs> Apparently he's not a very forceful one if you have to, if you're not sure. But, uh, <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to remember whether, whether we still have, a, still have a president. But either way, I mean, he, yeah, yeah. he founded, so it, with, he founded founder, it, with, it with Benjamin Todd. But he used that phrase spontaneously. And uh, I was interested because that's, that's the kind of thing I have in mind, like, like a tribe organized around the idea of fighting the psychology of tribalism. Yeah, yeah. I think 
one thing that I really like about the the effective altruism kind of community or the or the style that we have is that it, often when I talked about problems or approaches, I mean, like, well, here's some arguments in favor of this approach. Here's some virtues that it has. And then you also want to like, look at the other side, here's weaknesses that it might have, here's arguments that this isn't quite as impactful. I think that kind of reflective trying to be balanced style is fashionable. And like the normal way of speaking, I guess, when people are doing effective altruist work, we we have this thing called the the effective altruism forum, where people can just post kind of their own ideas and and their own research. And of course, like any open forum, it's, it's, it's very mixed, but much more than I think most places where you would see advocacy about ways that people could do good. People would really do try to, to like offer the arguments against their own project or against the problem that they think is 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 most pressing. Yeah. And I think that it makes a huge difference when you think like, well, every time I'm going to like consider an argument, every time I'm going to consider a proposition about what I should do, I'm going to like first think about reasons it could be true and then think about reasons why it could be false and then try to weigh them up. <laughs> yeah. Now that's great. If you can cultivate that kind of discourse, I mean, that's what the world needs more of, you know, and it's, um, uh... There's hope. I mean, I think there's more of it than there than there used to be. I, I mean, let me ask you this. What do you think is the most common motivator of kind of young people who get into effective altruism, if, if it's possible to characterize? Like, is that sometimes part of the appeal? Is there, I mean, are they people who consider like rationality cool or are they? <laughs> yeah, let's see. I mean, it's a really very diverse group of people psychologically, maybe, because it's like, obviously, there's people across lots of different countries from lots of different fields working on lots of different problems. So it's like, it's quite hard to generalize. Maybe though, like one way in which people involved in effective altruism are often different from other people who are trying to do good is maybe that they're motivated quite a lot by thinking about things philosophically or like, you know, trying to figure out what is really good, actually reading kind of potentially moral philosophy and trying to think things through from first principles and, and being motivated by a desire to perhaps be consistent with it, like make their actions consistent with their values. So, you know, a, a lot of people have heard this, you know, the idea of the stranger drowning in the pond and you could you could save them, but it would cost you a thousand dollars. Like, should you do it? And I think many people are comfortable kind of hearing that. And it's like an interesting philosophical thought experiment, but then they kind of get on with their lives and uh, don't worry about it. But I think people involved in effective altruism are more likely to be kind of maybe troubled by that thought experiment because they're like, oh, wait, I should save the, the drowning child. And like, what does that imply for for my life? I mean, one really good intellectual trend, I think, is people engaging in more and more of these long form conversation podcasts, which do tend to have this like very discursive, much more reasonable style than than discourse that you see on on Twitter or even like written articles, because simply like simply qualifying your statements and being clear and writing just takes so long that people almost can't be can't be bothered bothered to do it. And one one thing I kind of like about my own show, like I talk about it for a sec, uh, about, about its virtues for a second, is just that we don't just kind of talk about problems completely idly and like for, out of intellectual interest. We're often like, well, what does this imply for like what we could do if we wanted to, to actually fix this problem? What actions could someone take? And like, can we call them up? And like, and what are the reasons why that might backfire? And, and that kind of disposition towards actually trying to connect values and information with taking action, I think is like a distinctive and a part of the effective altruist culture that I that I like. Mm-hmm. What are do you have like success stories you're particularly proud of? Uh, let's see. Well, there's there's a reader of eighty thousand hours who I think read our stuff many years ago, and 
resolved. Uh, I, actually, I don't, every year we try to like quantify our impact and think about, you know, who have we held potentially have more impact? And one challenge is that there's often like many influences on someone. So they'll have read our stuff, they'll have read other stuff. But yeah, okay. So one person who we potentially might have helped put it in a positive direction decided that given their like quantitative skills, the thing that they should do in order to have more impact would be to go and make a lot of money and then become a massive philanthropist in order to have a large impact. Figure out, And later on, they'll figure out like which charities to give to or what projects to, to fund. And they went out to do that, and they have actually become <laughs> very wealthy, and, and now and now are like and now are a major a major philanthropist. So that's one potential story. There's a bunch of stories of people who are focused on kind of policy change, you know, both in like foreign policy and this kind of science and tech stuff that we've been talking about. I shouldn't name, name names because I don't have, don't have permission to do that. But, you know, a number of those people are kind of, you know, getting roles in government, advising people on policy and think think that they're plausibly changing things and directing funding towards the kinds of stuff that I think we'll both be, be really excited by. So mm-hmm. those are kind of typical examples. Good. What was your own point of entry? Do you remember like when you got excited about it and what did the job? Well, I'm 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 a weirdo. So <laughs> I was one of the people who joined uh, or like got excited about this really early. And I think that that group tends to be a little bit atypical because they're people who are you know motivated to take action before before so it was when something was, they were. When was this? Like what what year did you get in touch? Oh, with okay. It? So my background is something like so. I grew up in Australia. I read a bunch of Peter Singer's Moral Philosophy. I guess in the early to mid two thousands. And was like, yeah, increasing welfare, trying to do as much as we can to reduce suffering and, and increase well-being. That's a moral philosophy that I'm that I'm really on board with. And then I, you know, over time as a teenager and then later in my 20s, was reading stuff online to try to get information on like, well, what things could one do in order to have a larger impact? And, you know, obvious answers people have is like help the poorest people in the world to be healthier, to, to be happier, to be less poor. Another thing that Peter Singer talks a lot about is the terrible suffering of animals in factory farming. And so I was reading about these problems and other ones. And then I guess there wasn't really a like Peter Singer utilitarian movement online exactly. There was just a lot of people with this question, you know, how can we do the most good that then kind of congealed around this term effective altruism because that kind of captured the goal. And I suppose I applied to work at 80,000 Hours and kind of the, the associated projects back in 2012, back when it was very new. So That was early. I, <laughs> I, I certainly it for a while. hadn't. So the term was around then, effective altruism? Yeah, I think they coined it in 2011 or 2012. Okay. It's a slightly interesting story. I think they came up with, you know, dozens and dozens of options and then and then had kind of a straw poll. <laughs> and that, that was the one that came out. Huh, that's great. Now, I assume you get, well, maybe accused isn't the word because maybe you just do have an ideology, but I assume people sometimes attribute to you ideologies. I, hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, well, Peter is, you know, I would say on the left, but... He has a a pretty, in my view, clear view of like what markets can accomplish. If that makes sense, uh, what I uh, let me let me put it another way. When I was talking to Will McCaskill, and we were talking about his book, you know, he was talking about the fair trade movement. Where like, I mean, I've got some. My wife buys this. Ch- I've got some fair trade chocolate. If you would like to see it, but uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, the idea is. We guarantee that this is sourced from countries where, you know, they pay a certain amount and therefore we think these workers aren't exploited. And, you know, Will was just, we don't get need to get into the details. He was pointing out that ways that may not be the best way to help the people most in need because sometimes that's actually taking jobs away from, well, taking away from countries that have 
lower wages and you might think, well, aren't low wage jobs bad? And like, yeah, but for these people, they're the only jobs. Or if they don't get these jobs, they'll have even lower wage jobs. My point is just that, you know, he was thinking about this in a way that some people would consider, you know, some kind of pro-capitalist way. Although, you know, knowing Peter's I do, I know it's it's all a lot more subtle than that. Yeah, I think on kind of economic policy perspectives, people involved in effective altruism cover cover a pretty broad range. Maybe relative to other people, I'm I, I feel pretty favorable towards markets. And I remember as an undergraduate, you know, making the case that fair trade had serious problems and and it wasn't probably a way to help people very very effectively. But you know. When your goal is just make the world a better place, obviously there's lots of areas where people really completely disagree about you know what policy and this or different this or that different question is actually going to maximize well-being. So it's not surprising that among people involved in effective altruism, there's a there's a pretty wide range of views on you know taxation or trade or all of these other questions. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you this: you know, I have sung the praises of cognitive empathy, by which I mean just under perspective taking, just understanding somebody's point of view. There's also emotional empathy. Like, you know, seeing someone suffering and being moved by that. I have a a friend named Paul Bloom, a psychologist who wrote a book called Against Empathy, meaning because he believes emotional empathy can mislead us. I mean, the subtitle was The Case for Rational Compassion. I'm wondering to what extent, from your point of view, empathy in the sense of emotional empathy is sometimes a problem. Yeah, I mean, I guess Bloom, I I haven't read the book, but I've listened to a bunch of interviews and, and he points out that while in some ways it can motivate people to ethical action to try to to try to help other people, people there's lots of biases where people are you know much more troubled by suffering that they see versus suffering that they don't. They're much more troubled when someone like them is being harmed rather than someone who might be of a of a different race or a different class or so on. So there's I think I would not recommend that someone look at lots of pictures of problems or videos of problems and then you know use their reaction of how disgusted they are or how outraged they are or how painful they find it to look at to decide kind of what problem they want to solve or how they want to have a lot of impact. You know, I'd, I'd be concerned if I met someone who, you know, could look at someone suffering horribly and, and wasn't troubled by it. But I think what we should take from that is is more like it's bad when people suffer in general. And then we should put our thinking hats on and think, well, what things can we do that will reduce suffering in the biggest way? I mean, I'm in some ways, I guess I, I'm not someone who seems maybe super emotional and distraught a lot of the time, but I, in some ways I'm actually quite, quite a softy. I can't actually watch nature documentaries with animals in them because seeing animals being chased, seeing animals being, being eaten by other animals is like too much for me. I find it actually slightly distasteful that people kind of enjoy watching, you know, animals being chased and then and then eaten alive. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, I, and I think that's maybe that's an example of having to a very generalized sort of empathy. Where it's like I'm more troubled by some things than than other people, but but less about others. Yeah, I mean, I know what you mean, but at the same time, I have to admit that it's kind of selective. You know, it's like if a nature documentary can present one animal as like the bad animal, you know, that's what they do. It's like yeah. it's like my my wife they just use music. Me, what? Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. These music and like the, yeah, the, fra- the framing of the whole uh, chase. Yeah. My wife just showed me this video on social media of some like, what was it? A lion or something just kind of jumps down into the water and comes out with an alligator in its mouth. And I was like, well, it's kind of bad for the alligator, right? But it's like people don't think of alligators that <laughs> way, right? That's perspective taking. You're, you're yeah, doing a great job. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking, you know, that's got its pros and its cons. I mean, it's yeah. a meal. I mean, the lion needs food. But on the empathy thing, I mean, to some extent, I guess, as a practical matter, you have to take human nature as it is and work within its confines. I mean, what I'm thinking of is that a lot of charities really – 
take advantage of just the way people think. Like, for example, I'm sure you're you're familiar with these kinds of cases where, like, if you say, you know, give us money, we'll distribute food in this country to people who need it, that's probably not as effective as saying, see this family, we'll buy them a cow, right? And I remember my parents, you know, we sponsored a specific child in India, right? They would send us his picture. He was the one we were supporting. And I, I guess from an effective altruism point of view, some of these charities do wind up, you know, being a pretty effective from your point of view and some some don't. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would advise people to try to slow down, <laughs> as you were saying, so that there are particular buttons that you know, charities can compress, indeed that, that other bad actors compress, where they like show us some like made up injustice against someone who we relate to and then use that to get us to hate other people. Like empathy doesn't always cause people to have positive feelings. It can also drive them to anger and vengeance and so on. There's particular buttons that people compress on you to try to get you to do things. But if you, like me, think that, you know, your goal, at least with the, your altruistic resources, like I do lots of things that are that are just for me, that are just to pursue my own happiness and my own goals. But, you know, with the time and the money that I want to allocate to helping other people, I would like to help ideally more people and in a bigger way or, or animals or more animals in a, in a bigger way to like suffer less. If that's your goal, then when you see an ad like that, you want to slow down think, yes, this is a good prompt for me to remember that a lot of people are suffering in the world. There's a lot of bad things. And I want to help to ameliorate that and solve that problem. But before I like give away a whole lot of money, I should stop and think what way can allow me to have the biggest impact. And, you know, people sometimes find it more fulfilling to fund something where there is or there is a make-believe connection perhaps between them and some specific, specific recipient. And sometimes people would say, you know, it's justified for me to do this because I, I enjoy it more. And I think, you know, with your selfish budget, with whatever resources you're like using in order to benefit yourself, that makes that makes total sense. But it's quite self-centered to take kind of resources that you're in, in your mind thinking are to benefit other people, but then actually just choosing where to give based on what makes you happiest. That seems a little bit more like, oh, I guess we, we call it donor-focused uh, altruism yeah. rather than so like recipient-focused the, the, the altruism. Boy who gives, the boy who gives his mother a football for Christmas kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not condemning everyone. Like we all have these instincts and I'm selfish in the same way that other, other people are. But I think a lot of people on reflection will realize that maybe they, they don't really endorse that kind of behavior and they would rather give to something that, that has more impact. Random question. To prep for this interview, I went back and read a bunch of your 1994 book, The Moral Animal, which I guess was this, I suppose, early, early by today's standards introduction to evolutionary psychology. I'm kind of curious to know, is there anything that you missed in that book that's really important about evolutionary psychology or, or human behavior that, that you wish you'd put in or maybe something that was wrong in it? Well, I mean, one one thing that's asserted in the book is that people are very bad at honestly answering questions like this, like, what, what did you get wrong? <laughs> so yeah. if I could think of anything I got wrong, that would itself uh, reflect badly on evolutionary psychology. We wouldn't want that. <laughs> um, but I mean, a couple of categories of things, I guess. I mean, first of all, there are things where I accurately reported the findings to date, and they are now in doubt. Last time I checked, this was a few years ago, it wasn't so clear that vampire bats actually engage in reciprocal altruism. In other words, the idea was they come back to the cave, they've had a good good night, they've got a lot of blood, and they have a bat buddy who didn't have a good night, and they give them some blood. I think it may turn out that they're actually sharing mainly with kin, which has a different kind of explanation. There's things like that that are in some cases important. There are I think, you know, there's an obscure, not unimportant, but obscure argument within evolutionary psychology between group selectionists 
and individual selectionists. I wouldn't say I was dismissive of the group selection view, but I can see how I seemed to be dismissive. And certainly my own view is remains pretty much an individual selection view. I would I would I would recalibrate that and uh, be clear. And then it seems like I always wind up doing preaching. And I suspect that if I went back and looked at some of the kind of preaching I was doing, you know, in the realm of like, I mean, one idea in evolutionary psychology is that male and female sexual psychology are different. Doesn't mean they can't be changed. But, you know, all other things being equal, the average male heterosexual will have a, you know, different kind of inclinations regarding sex and romance from the average female heterosexual. And and I tried to look at implications of that for like people's happiness. And I think I may have predicted some things that would happen that didn't happen in this realm. Like I would not, I would not have predicted hookup culture. I would have predicted that I don't think it will work out well. And I'm starting to think that that's becoming a consensus. Maybe, maybe not quite, but It's far from clear to me that hookup culture has brought happiness to the generation that it first arrived in. But I guess those are the three categories of of kinds of things I might revise. Yeah, that that last one's interesting. I mean, yeah, I I studied genetics as an undergrad, among other things. And, you know, I'm familiar with the arguments. But as I was listening to it, I don't actually feel like in my life, the women that I know follow these stereotypes or that the men follow these stereotypes either. Uh, I wonder whether this is one where perhaps in the past, this was somewhat more more true, but culture has shifted at least among at least among my group. And the differences really just don't seem don't seem that pronounced to me most of the time. Yeah, well, one thing I would say is that there are caricatures of the evolutionary psychology worldview out there that are not evolutionary psychology. And again, maybe I wasn't explicit enough, but I, I, I absolutely said we're not saying that women do not naturally find extramarital affairs appealing or that it's in some sense unnatural for them to be sexually unfaithful. That's not the case. What's the case is that because during evolution, it would have paid off genetically in different kinds of circumstances from those in which it would have paid off for in men, you would see different patterns in when it pays off. And so you would you would still you would still expect women to be more discerning about sex partners, even when they're committing infidelity in a certain sense. And, you know, I mean, one thing I think you still find is that, which is kind of a prediction from evolutionary psychology, the market for pornography is overwhelmingly a market for males, right? I mean, uh, as if somebody wants to show me a society in which the opposite is true, I'm, I'm open to it. But there are theoretical reasons to expect that males are more stimulated by sheerly visual cues independent of, say, the personality of the person doing the the exciting, right? So, you know, and I, I well, I could go on, but I mean... Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know you gotta got to run in a minute. Do, do, do you want to take the last question or, uh, or shall I? I am kind of, I think, devoid of questions and, and I actually <laughs> do have to, I have to do something that's very rare in a pandemic, which is actually meet a person in a physical space. All right. Uh, and that person will be waiting for me. So I should uh, <laughs> probably go. But um, but I really appreciate, you know, getting to talk to you, you know, because, I mean, you've stimulated some interesting thoughts at my end. And I'm glad to, I, I mean, I'm heartened by by the idea that you are more interested in my kinds of causes than, than stereotype about effective altruism might have it, right? Yeah. In other yeah. words, these things that are they're hard to quantify, 
they're long-term. You do what you can by the best lights available. Yeah. If you're writing a book about uh, yeah the long-term future of humanity and preventing global catastrophes, you're going to start encountering people involved in effective altruism left, right, and center in terms of like yeah academics and, and and funders. So yeah, I think hopefully hopefully there'll be a lot of like fruitful collaborations between uh, yeah you and you and people I know uh, in the in, in the coming years. Well, I hope so. So let's absolutely stay in touch, and I'll be I'll be listening to your even even the editions of your podcast that don't have me in them. <laughs> yeah, I mentioned a, a couple of episodes through this. Yeah, we, we've got episodes about bioweapons, about climate change, uh, all, all of these kinds of things. Yeah, what was the guy's about. name? So, Andy Andy Weber was it? Andy Weber. That's a okay. recent uh, interview. Okay. We've got Mark Linus on on climate change. Tristan Harris on internet uh, internet stuff. Yeah, eighty thousand hours podcast. I just subscribed to the podcast. I'll be delving into the archives. Yeah, let me know what you think. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Rob. Have a great day. You too. My colleagues at 80,000 Hours uh, recently tried to turn everything that we've learned about career planning in the last 10 years uh, into an in-depth, step-by-step process for making a career plan. And that's now available as an eight-week course. It can be hard to work out how to apply our ideas in practice uh, and to turn them into a personalized career plan that you feel confident in. Uh, And this course is designed to help people bridge that gap. It organizes all our advice on career planning into eight parts. Uh, You can read the whole thing all at once or sign up to get one article to read uh, every week delivered to your inbox, uh, along with prompts to help you reflect on your plans. You can find it on our site at 80,000hours.org slash career hyphen planning slash process. The first week starts by helping you clarify your longer term goals, and the course takes you all the way through to concrete next steps uh, in week eight. By the end, you'll have written out a complete career plan in a template that we've designed. The course is designed to be helpful uh, no matter what issues uh, you want to work on or or what your skills are uh, or whether you're a student or maybe have been in a job for many years. If you're just curious to know uh, what our advice actually is, our CEO, Ben Todd, has attempted to compress it down into seven points, uh, one for each section of the full process. You can find that summary at 80,000hours.org slash career hyphen planning slash summary. All right. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts are available on our site and made by Sophia Davis-Fogel. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.